0: It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, Green Gardening and Environment Radio, flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at the Mike Novak Show, and at Mike Now on Twitter.
1: Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropical climes. True currents and thriving
2: seas, wind blowing, through breathing trees,
1: strong no on and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find.
0: Good planets are in the man. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to
3: Bartlett.com. streams, perfect there. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak.
1: Good planets are in the main.
4: Let me find that fader and get us out of there and out. And that's all the time we have. Good night, everybody.
5: Over and out. See ya. Bye.
4: Okay. Welcome to the show. Welcome to uh, whatever kind of Sunday morning you're having. Uh, those of you who watch or listen, well, watch the video after the fact or uh, stream the uh, podcast after the fact. No, we broadcast or stream. This is, you know, is it is, is streaming, broadcasting anymore? I don't know. Uh, well, if
5: I'm calling it internet radio, I would still say yeah. we broadcast.
4: Uh, live, Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. Central, and uh, we hope everybody joins us. In fact, I, uh, I had my uh, chat function up here, and I said, uh, good morning, folks, and there it is. Now it pops up. I, I realize you can't do it beforehand, because... Mm-hmm. Um, it, won't, mm-hmm. it just won't respond. And sometimes you can't even do it in real time <laughs> or it makes you yeah. log in again. But there you go. Log in and say, uh, pick the
5: dreams with the cars in the mountains. And the yeah. Hills.
4: Well, I think Legata is to here. Are you there, Lagata? Nope. Okay. We're looking for the cat. The show's getting started and we're looking yep, for the cat. We're looking for the cat. Well, she, usually she's like right there and nope. She's, she's on your not. feet. Um, well, I
5: know we're going to talk about something an hour or two, but can, can we, since we're talking about the show and Sunday morning and sure. what format, how can people tell us what they want in the show?
4: I'm asking you that question. Um, uh, what do you mean? How can they tell us what? You mean we by a doing survey a survey? Going. Yeah, so, yeah. We have yeah. our survey, yeah. which is still up, still running. You can go to MikeNovak.net. It's right there on the homepage. Uh, and uh, you can uh, fill it out, and it would really help us a great deal. Mm-hmm. We're figuring out what directions to move in, maybe the same direction, um, talking to people, uh, but we want to really talk to our viewers and our listeners uh, because you guys are the ones that have to put up with this every yeah. Sunday morning. So, <laughs>
5: <laughs> and, and are there topics that you want to hear relevant to the show that we haven't talked about? Are there guests? Are there things that you always say, why don't they talk about X, Y, or Z? Tell us. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
4: and just so you know, there's a list, uh, and and some folks write to. <laughs> I mean, a list of topics oh, that yeah. we need to get to, and we're we're aware of it. Some of the problems in the world. Uh, uh, I'll I'll mention one that's off the top of my head: that mysterious bird disease that is uh, sweeping across the country. We've been asked to uh, to cover that, and and definitely we need to get an ornithologist. Is that it? Uh, yeah um uh, on the program and, a bird
5: person yeah
4: bird 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 birdie person bird and, guru. Uh, and uh and talk about what that is all about uh and there are others that folks have written to us about um and uh we we add them to the list believe me folks and uh we we want to do it right so it's always a matter of coming up with the right people to talk about yeah. these issues so uh, but and today
5: the deck of books is high too so
4: uh, yeah we're we're a little behind in our reading we got <laughs> we got a couple of really cool ones out there in in the pipeline um yeah. to uh to bring to you um one about the brain and sound which i'm really looking forward to which which i hope we can do within the next month I, we really should um except it's it's thick um, and it gotta it's, read the whole thing. And it's yeah. dense. I know this is our problem, <laughs> Peggy. Is that we insist on actually reading these books? So, uh, oh well. Uh, but uh, this morning, uh, we're one of the issues we're covering. Uh, we've been covering for several years now, and the people who've been working on it downstate have been covering it a lot longer than that. Um, it's the issue of coal ash in the floodplain of the Middle Fork of the Vermilion River in uh, East Central Illinois. Uh, That is a a pretty fascinating story, and it's a story of people power, uh, as one of our guests put it, and I wrote in the blog. Go to MikeNovak.net. You can see the blog post for today's show. It has more information in case you don't catch everything on the program here. Peggy, uh, on our chat function, is sending out links all the time i've got kathleen upstairs who's tweeting away she's she's helping with the tweet thank you kathleen (laughs) thank you because i'm not doing it um and she's been and she's been really great on uh um instagram oh yeah you know you're not on
5: instagram go you know if you're not following us you're missing out
4: yeah there's a lot going on on our instagram account lately so go to instagram and follow us and uh there's some fabulous photos and some videos and all kinds of stuff. boy I, and I had to be dragged kicking and screaming uh into that so uh so TikTok we TikTok is next uh no 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 TikTok no, no okay <laughs> no TikTok okay uh le- little later on I'm going to have a little show and tell I'll give you just a preview of uh, show and tell there okay there looks like our logo doesn't it with we now we just need the oh earth. yeah
5: on there. Yeah, we could That's just kind a, of paint on there, that would be,
4: yeah. Yeah, it's a tomato for those of you uh, listening to the podcast. Um, the tomato, and uh, I, I, I got an email from a friend who's growing tomatoes, and she had tons of them, and I'm jealous because uh, my tomato crop is, eh, is, I mean, they're out there. There will be harvesting, we've started harvesting, but um, I think a combination of cool, may, and uh uh, other issues uh perhaps super
5: hot weather when the blossoms didn't set
4: yeah but i have i have one plant with exactly two tomatoes on it two, uh you know and it's it's five feet tall and it has two tomatoes on it so um but 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 then others i have dozens so it kind of kind of depends what we've got there so we'll talk about that later on we'll talk about other things rick de here and i'm going to pose the big question to him um that I meant to do last week, and this week I'm, I'm going to hit him with it, which is um, about weather events. When do you get to call a weather event related to climate change? So many news outlets are doing that now. Uh, I want to get his opinion on it. I know he he has very strong opinions about it, but... A lot of people are saying, "Yep, these uh, all these weather events are connected to climate change." And Rick shakes his head sometimes and says, mm, "I don't think so." Um, so I want to see what he's got to say uh, about all of that. So uh, that's all on the sh- on the show today. Thank you, folks, uh, for for being here with us. Uh, we love having everybody follow us and, and watch us. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel uh and uh, and that helps keep us going and fill out the the survey we sent out. Let's go to the the big screen here and bring in our guest uh, this morning uh in the upper right where Peggy usually sits, that's Pam Richard. Uh she and her husband Lan are co-directors of the Eco Justice Collaborative. Uh they basically sold their land in chicago i have known them uh for years uh from their work in chicago they worked on the uh, the fisk and crawford coal plant uh 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 shutter um and uh and then they threw everything into a u-haul and uh went uh, to the middle of the state good morning pam
3: well good morning to you it is nice to be here with both of you it's nice to
5: and have fun you. to
4: be here with both. Mm-hmm. great well, to see you again pam Thank you. Um, and uh, in the lower left is Andrew Rain, who has been on the program before. He's a water resources engineer with Prairie Rivers Network. Um, he provides technical expertise in support of Prairie Rivers Coal Pollution Program. Good morning, Andrew. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Peggy. Um, and in the lower right-hand corner, there's uh, somebody we uh, – we, this is kind of a make-good for her because the last time we did this was in december of last year we were still getting used to the uh to the the technical stuff here and the software and the hardware and uh and comcast uh yeah, yeah that although it wasn't comcast's fault then they I, I can blame them for other things um but uh jenny castle uh, was on the show and she really didn't get or was going to be on the show and didn't get to say much of anything at all. So uh, she's back. And I I'm so glad you, you you took the bull by the horns and said, yeah, I'll, I'll try coming back on the show. Uh, staff attorney with Earth Justice working in the coal program out of Earth Justice's new Midwest office in Chicago. And uh, she's focused her legal career on fighting to prevent, halt, and clean up air and water pollution primarily from fossil fuels and good morning jenny
0: thank you so much mike and peggy it's really nice to be here and glad to see that everything seems to be working
4: as we always say don't poke the bear uh <laughs> let's just uh let's just see what happens this morning um Pam, I want to start with you, and I want you to just uh, briefly, before I show a a little bit of a video that uh, Andrew uh, courteously sent to me, um, tell us a little bit about the Eco Justice Collaborative. I, I gave you just sort of a uh, a headline there. What have you? What what can you add? Sure,
3: sure. I, I can add that we're a small nonprofit, and true to our name, we collaborate with the uh, with other groups to get things done. And uh, what we like to do is combine economics, e- uh, the economy, and social justice together to advocate for systemic change. So uh, our work started uh, around climate change as we were transitioning from our for-profit business in uh, about 2004. And uh and, Fisk and Crawford was probably the very first uh, campaign that we had that that uh, that really that really got us to a point where we felt we were we were learning the trade so to speak and could walk that that bridge between activism and still talk uh, the the language of, of uh, not uh, for profits in addition to not-for-profits so since then uh... we've been busy on a variety of fronts uh... we moved down here this is going to be quick because we were working on a coal severance tax campaign And also working with a group that we helped get off the ground called Heartland Coalfield Alliance, which was trying to, to stop mines coming into Illinois. And we were traveling so much back and forth from Chicago to central and southern Illinois that we decided to relocate here. And that gave us a chance to start working on the Middle Fork.
4: All right. And speaking of the Middle Fork, let's go to this video and uh, anybody's welcome to jump in, but let's start with you, Pam. I think folks who are in Chicago and uh, and and other parts of the country who are watching and listening to this are not familiar with the Middle Fork of the Vermilion River. Uh, Pam, tell us what we're uh, we're looking at and why this is an important sure. river.
3: Sure, this is this is this is one of those favorite spots that that people travel from all over to to. Uh, canoe and kayak and fishing. It begins in a, in a little tiny place called Paxton in what I think is Iroquois County, winds its way south through Kickapoo State Park, uh, joins the Salt Fork, becomes the Vermilion River around Danville, and then heads on east into the Wabash River. It's an intimate stream. It's not a big river uh, and it's fun because as you can see from that photo, it twists and it turns and it twists and it turns and it has a gentle gradient, so you could really uh, travel this, this river without a lot of effort, except for skill, because lots of rocks, lots of places to navigate around gravel bars, and lots of fun, lots of riffles. The water, if it hasn't rained, uh, is crystal clear. When it rains, it gets runoff and it gets muddy for a time until it becomes crystal clear again. It is the most biological diverse uh, river stream in the Midwest and is host to a whole host of important species. You can't travel down this this river without seeing eagle, without seeing kingfisher, without seeing uh, blue heron. Uh, It has otters and muskrat and uh, fish galore, and it is just stunning. It's lined by bluffs and floodplain forest, and it's a real fun place to go visit. And it's been threatened a couple times. So we're going to spend most of our time talking about the threat the coal ash poses, but early on in the 17, in the 1970s, there was a plan to dam the river for uh, recreation and, and water supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danville was behind the project. And folks from Champaign County, not Vermilion County, but Champaign County, worked really hard to stop that project. Mm -hmm. And it took years of organizing, years of of letter writing, years of of working with the governor's office to get this river designated first as a state scenic river and second as a a national scenic river. And in fact, it's
4: the only only national scenic river in Illinois. uh, that has In Illinois. Right.
3: And then it
5: was designated in 2018 on a list of America's most endangered rivers.
4: Yeah, in fact, um, That's I wanna, good. That's Yeah, right. and I want to get uh, uh, Andrew since you work for Prairie Rivers Network and jump in here and 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 expound on what uh, Pam started. Well, you know, it feels like
6: uh, Pam covered a, a good bit of it. Uh, to, to To finish the story, that that dam that was going to uh, be built turned in turned the whole place into a reservoir. Uh, community groups, community members uh, uh, got up and said, you know, this isn't okay. Imagine if that had happened, the coal ash that we're talking about or that we're going to talk about today would have been underwater and inside the water supply uh, that that reservoir would have become. Um, Not that at the time people really had a, a, a lot of, Knowledge about that, and so it wasn't. I don't think that was one of the arguments folks were making, but uh, one of many problems when you when you would have uh, would have emerged if you had the, the reservoir been made. Um,
4: would would uh, yeah, oh, all the stuff we're looking at now would that have all been underwater as well?
6: I yeah, I I, I don't know exactly where all of these are shot, but uh, I, I think this video is all in the Middle Fork. So yeah, I think uh, the the whole seventeen miles of uh, protected river. Uh, the reason why that ended up in, in county and state ownership was because uh, they were purchasing it for the for the purposes of creating the reservoir, um, and yeah. so uh, these groups were able to kind of take this uh, something that would have uh, harmed the environment uh, and turn it into something good. Now, all this land was owned by the public, and they could link it all together, and and now we have a national scenic river. Uh, And by locking in that designation, it really was the the uh, end of of the the fight to to create a dam here, um,
4: a fight that went on for for decades. So, uh, Uh, you know, I I want to I want to jump in uh, with about that really quickly, because I think it's an important point that is missed. Uh, We are in the 21st century often the wise thing to do is not create dams, but tear them down. We are beginning to understand that uh, to protect biodiversity, we need to have uh, those rivers running back uh, you know, in, in, out west. It involves salmon runs um, and uh, just all kinds of wildlife that uh, benefit from a river that flows and isn't blocked up. Uh, yes, I understand hydroelectric power is important, but that's 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 17th century technology, really. It seems to me, and uh, we can do better. Uh, we can. We've got wind and uh, solar, um, and at some point, we have to restore the earth. It's time to uh, undam uh, some of these rivers, and so it's it's very interesting that downstate they wanted to create this dam, and and there were. Smart people and concerned people who fought this, uh, and it's a remarkable story in and itself uh, uh, to have prevented that dam from going up. And that's that's all I wanted to say about that because I, I I think it, it's important. Um, so and I interrupted you, uh, um, Andrew, and and you were going to go on.
6: Well, the you know the
4: the
6: I guess the moral of the story for me is that uh, you know even though back in. In that the i think it was 89 when they got the the scenic river designation although pam might correct me um the you know we probably felt like that was it we did it we've got the scenic river designation and uh, and we're still here fighting to to get the coal ash out of there because uh of those 17 miles of public land there was one public in holding or one private in holding which was the power company uh vermilion power station but um and you're going to hear a lot about that, but the yeah. the idea that it takes continual stewardship and continual uh, continually being vigilant to to make sure that uh, you know a river is actually protected, uh, the Middle Fork is sort of a testament to, to how much how much work it takes to really protect these things, mm-hmm. um, and, and what it takes from people to do it.
4: Yeah. All right, um, and so that takes us to <laughs> three point three cubic. Tons of coal ash sitting there in the, uh, the floodplain. And, and if uh, I can
5: sorry. ask for listeners who might not be familiar with coal ash, is yeah. there a quick description of what it is and why it's so bad?
4: Uh, Jenny, would you like to, uh, to take that on?
5: Sure, I'd be happy to.
0: So basically, um, as you all know, um, our country and many others, unfortunately, have been burning coal for many years to generate electricity and when you burn that coal, there are some heavy metals, some components of the coal that just don't, don't get burned, right? They don't, they don't get um, up through the stack. And some of them do, but because they cause a lot of contamination of the air, um, we've added controls over the last few decades um, to capture those. So what we have is sort of a combination of the dregs that are left at the bottom of the boiler, which are called boiler slag or bottom ash. Um, and then for those plants where there were um, air pollution controls that captured what we call fly ash because it flies up through the, the mm-hmm. stack and, or not all the way to the stack, but through the boiler and through the whole workings of the coal plant, capture that, um, throw it down into a big hole. Basically, what's the technology, right? Talking about 17th century technology. Yeah. You take these heavy metal laden dregs and dig a hole, right, and these plants are very often located as the middle fork, or as the vermilion plant is uh, right next to a river or a lake because Mm -hmm. coal plants needed a lot of water to cool their equipment. Um, And they would throw the ash in there, often um, put some water in there, making it an ash pond so that the ash wouldn't blow away, and uh, generally call it a day from there,
5: right? And and then an unlined pond, the pond isn't even lined dug a hole, did not put any liner in that. I mean, there over
0: the last couple decades, there have been a few exceptions where they've tried to do a little more in recognition of the fact that clearly these things have been leaching out these pollutants into groundwater for decades. At many sites, over 92% we found, based on industry's own data um, of a national survey of I would say impoundments, which are the, the ponds as well as landfills are contaminating groundwater to
4: unsafe levels. Yeah, and if you look at these photos, uh, the one on the left, you can see the power plant on the banks, but on a bluff above the river in the distance there. And is that a tributary on the left, lower left, uh, or is that the river itself? Uh, is that it is one, the Middle Fork. That is the Middle Fork. <laughs> okay. True. So you know, look at those ash, uh, coal ash ponds. Right next, all we need is a little breach there, and suddenly the whole thing's contaminated. And for anybody to assume that that is not going to happen is, is, uh, is a fairy tale. Um, you know, all it takes is, you know, we talked earlier in the program, we're going to talk with Rick DeMaio, our meteorologist, later about uh, weather events that are connected to climate change. Mm-hmm. What if you got one of those 500-year rains, uh, which could happen, certainly in central Illinois, uh, and that those little ponds there, either and even on the right side, you can see the New East, what is called the New East Pond, and then you've got the Old East and the, and the North. Uh, all it takes is uh, overflowing the banks, and suddenly that coal ash is going into the vermilion, right?
3: Yeah, uh, and, and I think...
4: Yeah. Pam, go ahead, Pam.
3: Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think what's interesting that the, these photos show, and by the way, this is a 2013... And I know you have photos that are more recent than this because things are changing. Uh, But one of the things that I think is so interesting about about the story is that Illinois Power, uh, uh, the original owner here of of the power plant, realized uh, pretty quickly that they had a problem. And that the river, which is a meandering river, as I said before, was moving its way toward the coal ash impoundments. I call them coal ash pits. I think it's more appropriate. So you're going to hear me say that versus impoundments. Okay. But uh, but what what they what they decided they needed to do was to take some action. And one of the things they actually considered was moving the river. So to protect the coal ash, you're going to damage the river and move it away. Yikes. Well, that didn't prove to be too feasible. And so instead, they installed uh, this huge, massive stabilization project along the two oldest ash pits, the Old East and the North Ash Pit, to, to protect the, the coal ash, essentially, from that moving river. And, and so this is this. done in 1981.
4: Yeah, these mm-hmm. photos are from 1981, which I think mm-hmm. partly accounts for why they are in black and white. But you can see the stabilization banks that they put here. So here's, a, here's a, another view. And, you know, looks kind of fancy and uh, looks like... seemed uh, like
5: a good idea at the time. Maybe.
4: Yeah, now I'm going to show you, look at that, and I'm going to show you what it looks like today. Those are the stabilization nets that were, were used. Uh, who wants, anybody, what are those made of? What, a, what is the, the construction yeah, material? I,
3: I think, I'll just, I'll just finish, finish up by saying those are, those are uh, what, what's commonly called gabions, wire baskets mm-hmm. filled with rocks. And what's happened over time is the gabions have been deteriorating and the river has been taking them off the banks and they're sloughing into the river. And just since the time that, that Ecojustice Collaborative got involved in this when we moved back to, to uh, Champaign, uh, because we used to canoe that river when we were young kids and met here at the University of Illinois, that was a favorite recreation spot for us, big changes. And so, so I think it's so dramatic to look at that what we call uh the hoover dam of stabilization (laughs) to to what's happening today right and so and so there's a real problem a real concern for for erosion and that potential breach and you can see as the river moves things down in a flood it slams rocks it slams trees into the riverbanks (laughs) and forms you know caverns so while we're talking a lot about measuring from the top of the bank to the toe of the slope of the impoundment don't forget photos like these because we're seeing all that undercutting
4: happen. All right, and I'm yeah. going to show you some. You have a series here that uh, starts. I have a couple. In you had several series. This is April of 2016, um, and there's already uh, a, quite a bit of uh, erosion underway. But it's amazing how that changes from April of 2016 to two years later, May of 2018. And you can see the difference there, uh, and then June. This says June. I don't believe it because nothing's. It's el-
3: not. I have a mislabel. Yeah.
4: Okay. That looks like a December photo. Twenty twenty. Okay, this is, so that's this is
3: Andrew's photo. Twenty twenty.
4: All right, so mm-hmm. so we could go back and and so so again, this was twenty.
5: Uh, 20- yeah. So six- the Gabians have totally failed by
4: that point. Yeah. Twenty sixteen. Twenty eighteen and then 2020. Uh, and, and you can see it's carving away uh, the banks of the river. And uh, is the coal ash just right beyond those trees? Is that what we're talking about?
3: Well, yeah, and in this instance, it's hard to know exactly where we are. But in, in some of the areas, this is along the north the north ash pit, I believe. And so, so I think the distance is farther away. Some of the other fo- photos where, where you start to see the colors is where it gets closer the old uh, east ash pit that's where the biggest problem is in my opinion.
5: where the leaching is occurring
4: yeah well uh, we'll get it to the well some of yeah those. but
3: it's
4: uh, yeah i want to the, leech- sh- the leaching go ahead sorry. go ahead the
3: leaching the leaching has has been there but it's more visible once the gabions you know come off yes. so when you move to the next set of photos and you see all those colors you'll see uh yeah
4: okay you can start
3: to see the colors here
4: and and then here there's 20
3: the old east ash pit, yeah.
4: Right. Dramatic and, and. change.
3: So, so by colors, you're meaning the oranges, primarily. The oranges, purples, and the blues, the iridescence, signatures of, of, of coal ash uh, pollutants.
4: Which you can see there. As a matter of fact, well, we need to break, uh, but when we come back, we've got a, um, a video uh, that uh, Andrew sent me uh, about that, that we can... Uh, I can show uh, a little drone shot of some of those colors and and the uh, legacy of the Gabions and their failure uh, there uh, on the middle fork of the Vermilion River. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We're talking to Pam Richard, Andrew Rain, Jenny Castle, uh, and uh, we hope you stick around. Uh, There's more to come, and we're going to explain again where we go from here that's that's the reality how what's did, the news well how did yeah. you make it yeah because there was there's there's a there was a big news event and I'm sort of burying the lead here but when I come back you'll get the lead you have the ability to give your soil a superpower. It's called composting. If you don't have a backyard, you need to contact Collected Resource Compost. CRC has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010. They bring you a fresh 5-gallon bucket or a 32-gallon neighbor tote with each pickup. You fill it with organic matter from your kitchen. They swap it out and get it to a commercial composting operation. Fight climate change. Go to collectiveresource.us.
1: This guy's a real jerk. He always acts like he's the only one in the preserves. This jerk is a trail hog. Whether he's on bike or on foot, not only does this jerk walk down the middle of the trail, but his music is so loud he's oblivious to others. On your right, jerk! Sometimes there's an entire family of jerks four wide on the trail. Hey Jerk, pay attention to your kids. That's not what we meant. People should travel on the right and let others pass on the left. But that's not how this family of jerks rolls. Hey Jerk, this is a terrible place to take a photo. Acting like you own the trail is rude and could have disastrous consequences. Zigzagging on a trail? Yeah, that's a jerk move. It's important for adults to teach kids proper trail etiquette, which is the exact opposite of what you're doing, jerk. We encourage people to slow down and check out wildlife, but this is one heck of a jerk move. It's fantastic that so many people use the district's trail systems, but it's important to follow basic trail rules. Failure to do so can not only ruin the experience for everyone else, but also can be dangerous. So, don't be a jerk.
4: Whether you're a farmer or a backyard gardener, assist your soil in providing key nutrients to your plants with Spectrum Soil Inoculum from Tinyo Biologicals. The beneficial microorganisms in Spectrum break down and release vital nutrients and make them more accessible to your plants. Spectrum works with nature to decompose organic matter into humus, building richer, healthier soil. Spectrum is approved for use on certified organic crops and is OMRI listed. Get Spectrum at blazing-star.com and folks what did we learn on that last break don't be a jerk okay that's that's what we learned and once again our thanks to the uh, Forest Preserve District of Will County they came up with that uh, campaign uh, a couple of years ago and uh, Peggy and I uh, really like it and I realized I, I'm just going to start playing those things uh, mm-hmm. uh, on the show uh, because I can um, and I uh, <laughs> And I hope uh, people learn about how to behave in the forest preserve. I, all of you uh, know what it's like out there, and it's uh, there's a litter one I think we've got for next week. So that's and that's one of the big deals. Um, welcome back to our conversation about the Middle Fork of the Vermilion River, and um, we're we're talking to Pam Richards from EcoJustice Collaborative, Andrew Rain from Prairie Rivers Network, and uh, Jenny Castle from Earth. Justice, uh, we we should get now to we we've look. Oh wait, I was going to show that one video. Let's let's do that you, so you can see some of the seepage footage. Let's let's go into this video. Um, uh, Andrew, is this uh, you? Do you want to handle this? Yeah, sure. So
6: um, we went and took footage of the seeps at the Middle Fork and. This is what you see all the time for maybe a hundred foot of the riverbank. Um, and, and this is very likely happening behind all those other gabions where we can't see it. But um, the, the riverbank is constantly carrying uh, water into the middle fork and, and causing this, uh, this staining. So uh, that staining is oxidizing iron. Uh, these seeps are water that has been uh, passed through the coal ash. Uh, contaminated with, with pollutants from that coal ash and then flown into, into the river here. Um, you're also seeing these caverns, which are uh, what Pam was talking about. This is what we see in the erosion, is that it sort of digs out below uh, this rocky layer, and then that top rocky layer falls into the riverbank, and then that all gets washed away as sort of chunks of soil and then it digs in again to this lower layer. So you have this sort of repeated undercutting followed by slumping, um, which is a common way that you you'll see erosion. Um, but yeah this is this is constantly happening every time I go there I'm seeing seepage of, of these pollutants into the into mm-hmm. the middle fork um, and it's you know it, it's happening it's happening all the time over a huge yeah. stretch of the, the riverbank. And that
5: erosion is. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead, Becky. And that erosion is just normal behavior of a river because, especially on a meandering, it's always changing its path.
6: Right, right. And and as you saw from those aerial photographs, this is this is on the outside of this really big bend, and that river wants to push out on that on that river bend, Um, and so it's it's definitely applying. It's it's very normal uh, erosive force on the outer bank, uh, and that happens to be where the coal ash is located.
4: So uh to get to the uh uh I guess the uh, the practical story here uh Dinergy, which didn't at first own us they bought uh, the uh the the uh, the coal plant um a few years ago power. Yeah and uh the the plant was decommissioned in 2011 uh but at that point uh, after X number of years uh, since 1950s, uh, it had built up all of the coal ash there, and their plan was basically just to leave it where it was, and they said, well, no problem. You know, even though you documented that there was a problem, how is it that you got the uh, uh, organizations, uh, agencies like Illinois I uh, EPA and um, IDNR to uh, pay attention to this. Um, Jenny, perhaps uh, uh, you can tell us this, a l- little bit about this.
0: Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say it was absolutely the collective effort of Prairie Rivers Network, Ecojustice Collaborative, Earth Justice, and really a lot of other folks across the state. Um, we fought it on multiple fronts. We think since around 2011, um, groups like Prairie Rivers Network have been really highlighting the problems of contamination, all those psychedelic, strange colors that are, you know, look a little pretty when you first see them until you realize it's toxic concentrations of, yeah. of metal flowing into the river um, through hearings, through citizens hearings, right, that were not officially sanctioned necessarily by the state, but people's hearings that Eco Justice Collaborative has put together through multiple lawsuits. We have sued them at the federal level for federal law violations. We've sued them at the state level for violations of of state water standards.
4: Um, and you're and you're, an rat- at, you're an attorney, uh, uh, Jennifer. So you you were involved in a lot of those lawsuits, right? Uh,
0: yes, in all of them. That's right.
4: <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, um, but uh, that's that's how things get done too. You know w- what you just alluded to. Is what I wrote in the blog, which is this was a coming together of a lot of different folks. Um, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Pam and the Eco Justice Collaborative were having meetings and 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 drawing people in and saying, Hey, this is you, you've got to know about this. Uh, the public put pressure on uh, Earth Justice, put pressure on Prairie Rivers Network, and as you said, other organizations put pressure on. And, and this is a combination of all of that. Uh, uh, th- the point here is that. It's not easy. This is not an easy thing um, to to get these companies fast, uh, right, to be responsible. And it didn't help that uh, Obama had some standards that were announced in 2015. Uh, I believe it was The Washington Post that called them weak tea uh, because they weren't particularly strong. And then, of course, there was the election of 2016. And when the world got turned upside down, that had to have made it a lot harder to proceed, Pam. Um
3: it did and it didn't. And here's why it didn't. Uh, one of the things that, that I believe so strongly about is that the, uh, the 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 people in Vermilion County finally began to care about about the, the middle fork. We came into to Vermilion County as outsiders and had to build a lot of trust. People have been saying, you know, we don't get, nobody cares about us. Like you can do what you want, but nobody's going to make change. And it took a lot of effort, a lot of organizing, a lot of persuasion to bring elected officials, local officials, et cetera, on uh, the, the, The the coal ash uh, rules of 2015 probably had more influence uh, upon the Coal Ash Pollution Prevention Act and subsequent coal ash rulemaking process than I think it did here, Uh, because a lot of it was educating about the the local issue. And what I really think is is interesting is that uh, it took a lot of effort to get the likes of Scott Bennett, Senator Scott Bennett, who... uh, who is obviously uh, had the river flows through his district on board, and it really took a meeting with Dynagy after Dynagy began uh, to to kind of take the the wind out of our sails, so to speak, and take people on tours. And we held a meeting with Dynagy Scott Bennett Andrew and a couple other folks uh, for him to see that what Dyna was, was saying uh, was, was, was not at all accurate. And he is the guy who became a super champion from then on and actually uh, became the lead sponsor for the Coal Ash uh, Pollution Prevention Act and Coal Ash Rules. So, so the organizing we did here around this issue had a much broader impact statewide. Uh, and it was really used as a poster child of, of the problems here. And not only the problems of Coal Ash, but the problems of the siloing of agencies, because they aren't communicating with one another and they're not working with one another. And to be quite honest, when you have uh, the, uh, the director of the EPA coming from a, a background of working with uh, coal and lobbying for coal uh, power companies and coal mining companies, it makes it even harder. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I want to say that that I think it was the organizing and the, and the raising of the profile of the problem through through uh, events and the media, uh, you know, TV, print, radio, all of that that gave uh, the at least us, you know, but all of us the uh, the ability to I think have have more influence over over agencies in a way that we wouldn't have if it hadn't been for that. They would have continued to do what they were doing, the EPA would have. They worked, would have worked out a deal, in my view, for cap and uh, leave the ash in place, and they'd be gone. But they couldn't do that because of the high-profile nature and the elevation of this that we raised through lawsuits, through the uh, organizing, et cetera.
4: Some people called it cap and run, which is what they wanted <laughs> to do. And th- their, what their goal was just put a cap of some kind uh, on it, and we're out of here, and don't worry – Nothing bad is going to happen, which you know is not true. It's just absolutely the farthest thing from the truth. Um, and this is why fighting and fighting for, for decades um, was was so important. Yeah. Uh, you did mentioned – go ahead, Peg.
5: Did it make any difference at all um, between dyna and then the new owners, I think, it's Vistra? Did anything change or was it still business as usual?
0: I would say I think um, it's a little more of the timing rather than the change in ownership. I mean, the last few years have really shown us that coal is not a viable entity going forward. Yeah. Right. Um, and so we're going to see a lot of shutdowns. I mean, we've got announcements that coal plants are going to be shutting down all over the state in the next right. less than 10 years. Um, so I think the new owners realized this was a serious liability as, you know, there are frankly so many other serious areas and problems across the state of Illinois where these coal ash impoundments, coal ash pits as Pam properly tells <laughs> them, um, are located, including right off the shores of Lake Michigan in Waukegan, um, including off the Illinois River in several areas. So I would I would just say, I think Vista sort of, you know, read the tea leaves, going back to the tea analogy, and said, um, we're gonna be shutting these down. We're required to close them. And uh, we better do it right because we know we're going to be hearing from everybody pounding down our doors mm-hmm. as they have been right to the last We're going to be under
4: the right. microscope, yeah. Um, and uh, one of the questions I want to ask is, uh, Pam alluded to uh, a bill, and Jenny, you were the, one of the chief writers on this bill that got passed in Illinois. And from what I understand, it's one of four – we're now one of four states who uh, have – Uh, more specific laws regarding coal ash. What did you accomplish by getting this bill passed?
0: You know, this was really a tremendous accomplishment, and I have to give a ton of credit to Pam and Andrew um, for getting us to the place with Senator Bennett where we could, you know, viably have legislation that could go through. Um, We accomplished a lot. Uh, There's a number of things in this Coal Ash Pollution Prevention Act that go above and beyond the protections that federal rules provide. Um, The sort of three key pillars of the law were permanent protection, um, a voice, and a guarantee. And in the federal requirements, there is neither a voice nor a guarantee. And by a guarantee, we meant polluters pay, right? The communities that have been saddled with these ash pits for so many years that continue to see the flow of toxic metals into their waters should not be the ones that are required to be left holding the bag. If a community goes bankrupt, as so many coal generators have been, and decide to take off and leave the problem, the mess for someone else to clean up, well, that's not going to happen. They have to set aside funds for the proper Mm -hmm. cleanup and closure of these ponds. Um, And there have to be plenty of opportunities for public input which is part of what's keeping Andrew and Pam and me and others so busy these days is we're getting ready uh, with these rulemakings and permits that are coming up to be able to lend our voices to what needs to happen um, at many sites. And we think there are so many more besides uh, the the critical vermilion site um, where the ash needs to be dug up and moved away.
4: Yeah, and and to be sure, Andrew, this is not the only river in Illinois or across. I mean, we have these coal ash pits all over the country, and we have them all over Illinois too, don't we?
6: Yeah, uh, it's one of those things where it depends who you are asking to to know how many we have. But uh, you know, over seventy is the uh, the last official number I've heard from the, the wow. state. And, um, you know, there are some on, near Peoria, uh, at Powerton, at Edwards, there's some in Chicago, at Waukegan, there's some in, on the Illinois River near Joliet, near Will County, uh, there's some downstate Illinois at some, some lakes, Baldwin, uh, Newton Lake, uh, Joppa on the, on the Ohio River. Uh, you know, the the map of it is is it's it's the whole state. So it's in no way an isolated problem. And and the mm-hmm. rules that Jenny is talking about is is really this was a huge win because now we have a process for all of these going forward. It's also a, a, it's kind of it's going to be crazy. I mean, these things are now all suddenly on a path to be regulated, closed. And, you know, they're whatever's going to happen there is going to happen. But just in uh, Illinois, just right? A few years. Just, yeah, Illinois. Yeah, these rules—the yeah. rules we're talking yeah. about—there is a federal rule, but the, the state rules are are just now kicking in. We just did a rulemaking uh, with you know all of these folks here and and many other great groups working on it, and and got a good set of rules, and and now it's kicking in, and it's going to be crazy busy. And in the Middle Fork, it's just one uh, of a number of places where where we're seeing things move already.
4: And now you've got you, all of you have to go from activists who were agitating for this to watchdogs to becoming watchdogs to make sure the coal ash gets properly moved away is that right
3: it is, yep. and did we say clearly enough that Dynagy is actually going to move its ash? Did we say yeah, that? Yeah, we
4: we 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 <laughs> I I haven't gotten to that buried lead yet. Yeah, there's that buried the lead, lead is still buried. So it was uh, all right. Let's get it out in the open here. About a month ago, Dynagy announced, "Yes, we're going to do it. We're going to move the coal ash away from the river, and that is the only thing that was going to save that river." And so, yes, congratulations to all of you uh for, yes, the for for your hard work we
3: do get the dings.
4: yes oh you got yeah. another one here all right <laughs> uh, so but then again now that moves all of you into a new phase of this it uh, does it does
3: and, it and, does. and, and i think mm-hmm.
4: go ahead pam Sorry. I think there's
3: still going to be some grassroots organizing again. I mean, we don't know exactly what those plans will show. You know, if you read if you read the uh, uh, the comments from Dynagy about this, yes, they agreed to move the ash, but they really mm-hmm. don't think they really think they could have solved the problem with you know leaving it in place. So so we really have to watch all elements of their of their uh, proposal, and if if necessary, and I suspect it will be. We want to make sure we we get public involvement, public input and all those who care about the river and depend upon it for for tourism. Danville depends on this river for tourism Uh, uh, and there's an economic component here. So uh, so I think I think the work is is far from over. But uh, but the lead is so darn exciting. I could hardly contain myself when I learned about it. (laughs)
4: Well, this yeah. is why you were doing this because you sent an email to us and said hey you've got to uh you 've got to know about this uh decision and and what they wrote was this is Dynagy while we believe certain closure alternatives without removal e g hybrid approach of removing all of the ash from one of the impoundments, placing that ash into other on site impoundments located." further away from the river and closing the impoundments with a robust cover system is protective. Given the unique nature of the site and to resolve the pending dispute with the state of Illinois, we have Mm -hmm. agreed to close all of the impoundments by removal. Um, Yes, really. (laughs) Let's have a round (laughs) for all the folks. Um, I have a a question here though, that I I hope is not going to get anybody in trouble um but in doing this uh we talked about various agencies like the IEPA and the IDNR um from what i understand those agencies needed to be nudged too that they they weren't just jumping right into the fray and saying hey we need to take care of this you they wouldn't have budged without you guys am i right in in, in saying that
3: yes that simple answer, from my point of view, is yes, and I don't think anybody here would would disagree with that. And again, by having people behind us, for example, we're little, we're a little organization uh, coming coming to uh, Central Illinois from Chicago, where few people knew of us. Had we not had the backing of of two thousand plus people behind us who are writing letters, who are showing up at meetings, uh, who are talking to the media, etc. I don't think that the IPA, for example, would have even gone out on the river to uh, to issue that second notice of violation, which has led to this uh, latest agreement. But because because of that, we were able to to talk to the Illinois EPA and say, "Hey, <laughs> you know, you're not doing anything. Get out on the river and see what you talk, what what we're talking about." And they did uh, because it would have been really hard not to. And it was so funny mm-hmm. because you look at all the of correspondence we have fired and it's like what are we going to do with this one who how are we going to who's going to respond to this you know but they did because of all that media pressure uh so yeah they had to be a bit more than quote nudged uh but they but they did respond
4: is go ahead go ahead peggy
5: oh well i had um timeline questions um but it sounded like you were following up on that question mike
4: no actually i wasn't so
5: so so my understanding from reading um, reading all the information is that by December, they need to have a plan of what they're going to do. What's realistic, though, of how long it's going to take them to find places to relocate this and to actually relocate it and clean it up?
4: Andrew, you're nodding, so maybe you want to pick up on that.
6: Yeah, I, I can take a shot at it. I mean, um, it's it's hard to say based on solely uh, other other. Co- companies have done this in other states uh, and, and have overestimated how long it's going to take or underestimated. I think it's fair to say the answer is years. Um, if it's going to be five years or 10 years uh, is, is maybe a question that we're going to find out a bit more uh, about yeah. as, as they propose their plans. And then as those plans go into motion, because um, we know from other states they say it's going to take X long and then they're done three years earlier. Um, or, you know, who knows, maybe they find some other problem that means it's going to take uh, actually a lot longer. You know, there, uh, I know for a fact that there is a, there is a, a a large piece of construction equipment inside one of those coal ash ponds uh, that sank hmm. there a few years ago. So, you know, things like that might add, I don't know how long that takes to pull one of those things out. So um, you, you, ne- you never know, but it's, it's not going to be, this isn't a you know finger snap done. This is this is a process, and and as, as you all have indicated, we're going to still have to be here through that process. Uh, they propose a plan on December seventeenth this year that includes removal. That's just the first step. They propose that plan, present it to the public, then they take the public's feedback, then they go to the Illinois EPA and they they propose a process there then that goes to public notice that gets a comment period that has a hearing if we call for it yeah. so uh there's there's a lot ahead even just in the permitting process to make sure yeah. we get this right and this is what we were fighting for was these levers where you know pam doesn't have to plan a a citizen's hearing there is a guaranteed hearing that the agency will be hosting so our voices have an, have an established forum to be heard. And and that was a big win of the rulemaking that is now benefiting us in, in how this specific fight is playing out.
4: And I can hear, uh, Jenny, you've turned on your microphone there. Uh, it sounds like you're eager to jump in with this. Um,
0: I was just going to say, I think, um, you know, while we... We take a little bit of umbrage with regard to Dynagy's claim that this is a a unique site. Um, You know, it it is absolutely right in certain ways. And that is the only national scenic river in Illinois. We do have this erosion problem that is, you know, absolutely devastating at the site. And and 3.6 feet a year is what Illinois, um, the Illinois Attorney General's Office on behalf of Illinois EPA alleges in their complaint. That was what led to this agreement to remove the ash which we knew, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's plain from those pictures that you saw um, that that it is moving really quickly. And I think, so sort of two, two points on this. One is I think there will be some unique considerations because of that level of erosion, which just isn't the case at a lot of other rivers in Illinois or lakes in Illinois, um, that there will be additional precautions that will need to be taken as they are working to remove the ash mm-hmm. to make sure it doesn't, crumble right or tumble um into the middle fork that that we're so carefully yes the pressures change on the soil and everything it's gonna absolutely so i think that's part of it but at the same time it's not unique right because there are so many sites throughout illinois where these where there are these unlined ash pits sitting in close proximity to rivers or lakes not always as close as the the Vermilion ash pits are to the middle Fork, but often very close as well shaky earthen dams as the only things that are separating those ash pits from the rivers or lakes so we think that you know it should not take multiple generations right of state of advocacy with groups from all over the state working um to get the ash to 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 be removed through this process and we're hopeful that the rulemaking and all these opportunities for public engagement will
5: get us there for other sites as well. Mm -hmm. And and we've had a couple of viewers post asking the question, so where is it all going to go? Where does it get moved to? Um, I I can take a stab and then (laughs) then others can
0: jump in. I mean, I think, you know, from our perspective, what is absolutely critical about where coal ash goes is that it's high and dry, right? It can't be left in the floodplain. It can't be left in contact with water. Um, And so, landfills with all the modern bells and whistles the liners the leachate collection the proper covers those are some of the options of where the coal ash can go when it's removed there's also opportunities that are you know much safer in terms of what you can do with ash than just leave it in the floodplain that includes using it in as a replacement for cement and concrete um, because the way there's a chemical reaction that basically prevents yeah, get those mixed into from leaching yeah. out Exactly. So there there are a number of, quote, beneficial use options, some of which we think are actually safe, the encapsulated versions like cement, um, and some of which we, we are significantly concerned about. Um, and so we're, our flight is not over, even if the ash does get removed, because where they take it next is going to be something we're going to watch closely.
4: And I just want to pop up a reminder of what we're fighting, what you are all fighting to protect um, along the Middle Fork. Of the vermilion river, and here's one of my all time favorite photos um, <laughs> of otters <laughs> that that's that is just too wonderful and uh thank you for uh, all the photos and I know we we credit uh a, a number of folks for those including um the uh, eco Justice collaborative and prairie rivers network thank you uh for all of the the uh the opportunity for me to to post some of these photos online. Um we're out of time folks. Um I was going to ask uh one more question of Andrew. Do we have a comprehensive list of all the the coal ash pits in Illinois? We have so you're nodding Pab, so that is something we He have. has it. Okay yeah, so yeah. The, yeah. well, no the point is it exists. All right? Because And that's uh, at
6: Illinois dot org? Well uh You can find a fair amount of information there. I'm not sure, there's a lot of information there. The one thing I will say, and this is is coming up and I'll be very brief here, coal ash isn't always in impoundments. And we know a lot about the impoundments and we know some about the coal ash landfills. Uh, A lot of these sites have have historic fill, which means that they just used ash to level some ground or maybe they wanted to build a building and they put ash there first and then they built the building on top of it. It was beneficially reused, I'm putting finger quotes for people who can't see me, in, in lots of ways, and that ash is still polluting as well. And so uh, while we have a handle on the scope of the problem in some sense, uh, there's a lot of potential unknown ash out there that is also going to be causing pollution. And we need rules for those. And that's what we're working on right now back in the rulemaking process to make sure we we identify and clean up those sites as well so there's a ton of layers to this problem and one of them is that we don't know where all the ash is for sure
4: <laughs> oh boy all right well let's let's we're going on an ash hunt uh, next uh we'll just <laughs> see where everything is uh pam richard andrew rain Jenny Castle, thank you all. Uh, if you want to find out about their organizations, go to my website, mikenovak I've got all the links there, um, and um, Peggy's been posting them as we uh, as we do the show, so you can find oh, them we've in got the some info
5: uh, about. Yeah, I was going to add, we've got some info about what's happening in Indiana too, and uh, uh, Michigan City.
4: So I have a feeling around December uh, we're going to be talking again to see how that hearing goes, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, do keep us posted. Okay.
3: Yeah, and, and I just want to thank you for lifting this issue up. And, and the other thing I want to do is thank publicly Andrew and Jenny, who have done such extraordinarily marvelous work to get us where we are on coal ash legislation and coal ash rules. Uh, they've been amazing. And, and as you hear, the fight—the fight's
4: still going on. The fight so, continues. The fight me. continues. You guys have yeah. a great Sunday, and uh, we will be talking very soon. It's the Mike thanks, Novak so. Show. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We'll be right back.
7: Okay, let's say you have a problem. It's Monday morning and your car won't start. What's the first step? Find out what's causing the problem. Or, better yet, find someone who can. It's impossible to remedy an issue without first determining the cause. And when there's a problem with your tree or shrub, that's where Bartlett Tree Experts comes in. We call it Plant Analysis and Diagnostics. We'll start by accurately identifying your tree. This is important because a tree species will indicate its typical traits and tolerances, as well as any susceptibility to insects, disease, and other stress problems. Next, we'll look at the tree from the ground up. We'll check the condition of the soil, examine the root collar for decay or other issues, look at the color and health of the foliage, and inspect for damaging insects or disease. There's a lot to consider when making a correct diagnosis, and your local Bartlett Arborist has some unique support A team of top scientists at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratories. We can collect soil or plant samples from your tree and shrub and send it to our lab for analysis. Our lab analyzes over 20,000 of these samples each year so you can count on an accurate diagnosis. Our lab also functions as an education center for our arborists to receive ongoing training. So after diagnosing your tree problem we can also provide the most advanced arboricultural techniques and treatments to help solve it. Successful plant healthcare is all about timing and early detection. If something is concerning you about your trees or shrubs, don't hesitate to let us know. We're happy to help identify the trouble with our expert plant diagnostic services.
0: Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, Green Gardening and Environment Radio with just a soupçon of humor—or is that a dash? brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a
3: champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki
1: and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat. and Make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, rooted bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, lingerie Give me all that I can take.
4: And welcome Give back to I the show. I was just doing a, to a Howard Hessman thing from WKRP in Cincinnati. I was look you know, looking at you and just kinda of went that it's like uh, that's sort of a uh Johnny Fever moment. Uh, oh. uh you were
5: having your Johnny Fever moment on I was on a having
4: Sunday. my Johnny Fever moment on a Sunday morning. Uh, <laughs> Any particular reason why? I don't know. I just like, uh, uh, no. <laughs> it's, it's, maybe it's because I got about four hours of sleep last night. So uh, uh, there we go. Um, before, let's first of all, our reminder, which we reminded you at the top of the show, which is go fill out our survey. Go to m i k e n o w a k M I K E N O W A net If you've ever watched the show, if you watched it once, even once, uh, go in and uh, take the survey and uh, let us know what you think about what we're doing here. Uh, But I also wanted to get out very quickly to let folks to give a heads up, because the next two weeks are going to be really, really fun. Uh, Next week, we, after two years, holy smoke, after two years, we are on the road again on the road oh. again uh and uh we are going to be going out to the growing place in aurora aurora um that's the dog who says oh, how's that aurora um aurora Illinois. Yeah, you
5: really did only have a couple hours
4: of sleep yeah i know you? No, well that's i'm channeling i'm channeling uh spike odell from uh gargantua radio down the dial he had uh, a recording of a dog somebody one of the listeners said my dog can say aurora and then it, it, we would play it and the dog would go aurora and you think okay close enough that's that's close enough c- c- can basil Irwin. can basil say aurora no he can say woof. He in, woof. in fact he's saying it in the background i right heard now. that that was great good timing there basil <laughs> he gets a ding yeah, he does. He gets a doggy ding. All right, wait. There's a doggy ding. Uh, so we're going to be at the Growing Place in Aurora next uh, Sunday, live. Uh, Skeet is going to be with us from Bartlett Tree Experts, a proud sponsor of the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki, and uh, we're going to be talking about trees and shrubs and cool stuff going on out in Aurora. We, I believe it or not. Well, 2000 Montgomery Road in Aurora. Okay, uh, and uh, I went out there last week, did a test. It all seems to, all right, Howard Hessman. Um, it all seems to work, so we'll see how uh, how how the uh, the situation is there. But um, I'm just excited to not be cooped up in the house, but also not have to go indoors any place yeah. to do to do. And folks
5: can come on out and,
4: and see us. Now the the uh the garden center doesn't open till 10. So we want you to rush the gates at 10, okay? <laughs> and cinnamon rolls will be accepted or donuts. Uh if if Demio comes out, yeah. Uh no, he he'll probably still be uh, on the computer at home, but uh <laughs> yeah, if you want to bring cinnamon rolls or donuts, chocolate covered donut cake donuts. Yeah. Chocolate covered cake Donuts. Those are the ones I like. Um, So next week, uh, uh, join us there. But two weeks from today, it is the return of Tomato Mania. Yeah, there we go. All right. Uh, Tomato Mania with... uh, Don't be a jerk. With KC Tomato and... Well, I don't know. I just threw it in. Oh,
5: Amos says he'll be there. Amos Barrow. He lives out that way. Amos said he'll be there. Oh, okay, really? Okay, Amos, you're bringing the donuts. All right, bring the donuts. Um, Maybe Dan Castro will come out, too. He's out in that area, sort of, kind of. Uh,
4: no, not really. He's a
5: little, no, he's further south. That's right, yeah.
4: He's, he's Hinsdale. Well, actually, he lives in Westchester. But um, don't worry. I'm not going to yeah. dox you. I'm not going to dox you, uh, Dan. Let's, yeah, let's post his home address on the screen here. Um, but, uh, uh, tomato mania with Casey tomato and Craig lahoulier uh, is, uh, back and we're going to be talking about breeding tomatoes, but also late summer problems. Uh, and, and right on cue, let me hold up. And dwarf tomatoes, which we never got to last time. This baby, this is my Cherokee Ooh. purple. Isn't that lovely? Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That got that got yanked off the vine when there was, you know, first blush, pulling them all off at first blush so that they uh, critters from chomping them. They survive. Here is a garden ruby. It's a smaller one. Uh, There are larger ones on this one came out uh, early. Um, I mean, let's compare the garden. From University of Florida, Harry Klee. Harry Klee. Uh, This is a garden gem which is smaller than the garden rubies. Love these guys. And the thing about them, that the, they're really tight. They're, uh, even they feel like they're not ripe when you grab them, but they are. They're just tough, and uh, they ship well. And, uh, and a surprise cucumber. <laughs> I, I only had that because I, I, was, I was looking at a plant that was stuck away in the corner, Oh look, there's a cucumber. Okay,
5: yeah. and that's a nice, manageable size. It wasn't. Oh look at that baseball bat. That's a no, cucumber. No, no, this
4: is like no. This is perfect. This is perfect <laughs> yeah, for our for perfect. our salad. So, yeah. Um. What? And, and uh, there's it's it's been an odd growing year for me for me. Um, I just need more sun. There's just not, not enough sun in in my yard. So yeah. so anyway, but
5: speaking jo- of people's gardens and growing.
4: Oh, yes. Um, I've
5: got... so, well, actually, so next Sunday, be there. I put the link up where the growing place is in Aurora. We hope to see you out there. Amos has already said he's bringing, he's bringing the donuts. He says, you got it.
4: All right. Thank you. And um, we've got a notice from uh, Donna Forsberg, uh, who is a fellow uh, Cook County Master Gardener. The 39th Annual Graceland West Community Association Garden Walk. You don't know how how lucky you are, Donna, that I I have time to to pop this in the show today. Normally, you know, we're just crowded with guests, Mm -hmm. and and we're lucky if we get garden walks in there. Uh, But it's today. Um, From uh, 1 to 2, there's the Gardener's Preview from 2 to 6 p.m. Public visitation. It's free. Um, And the boundaries are Montrose to Irving Park, uh, Clark to Ashland. And, um, and and Master Gardener and Gardening Literature will be available at 4334 North Greenview. It's a self-directed tour, and maps will be available at... Why don't you just put them in the same place, Donna? Because <laughs> the maps are available at 1416 yeah, West, West Bell Plain. So And
5: the website is gracelandwest.org.
4: So just go there and you can figure out uh that. So uh we're happy I'll look to Look for that
5: link and copy and paste it here. And if you can't make it there, but you've got a great garden, we would love to see it too. Yes, go ahead. Uh Chicago excellence in gardening awards sorry i'm copying and pasting and trying to type and talk all at the same time um okay (laughs) i'm trying to get the graceland garden walk up there um chicago excellence in gardening awards we it's august 1st so you now still have a month one month 31 days to get out in your garden start taking some photos start shooting some video put it into a nice one minute presentation upload it to youtube of your garden and enter Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards. Our uh, video challenge continues for the month, and you can go to chicagogardeningawards.org Chicago dot org
4: to enter and win accolades, fabulous prizes, and <laughs> yeah. dings and and, and dings <laughs> and dings, right? And and rim shots. All right. Um, yeah, we hope you all. Uh, you've got another month, so. Get your cameras out there. Get your cell phones out there. Just go into your garden. Give us 60 seconds. We had somebody come in at a minute 38, and we had to write back to them and say, no, that's a little long. We'll let you go a couple of seconds over, but uh, not, not, a, not 30 seconds over. Um, but, uh, and then you've got to get your friends to go to the YouTube page, Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards, and use the thumbs. In, you can't just view. You've got to hit the thumbs up. Uh, if you want to win valuable Wally prizes. So, uh, that, again, that goes through the month of August. I can't believe it's August. How did August yeah, get here? How yeah. did it get here?
5: How, how, how?
4: Yeah. Um, and, okay, and, so I
5: just got the Graceland West Garden Walk link up, and I'll get the Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards link up now.
4: Okay. Um, For everybody following along. In the comments. Uh, If you're following along on your scorecards at home, um, the Cubs are not going to win another baseball game until 2024. Just letting you know. If you had faith that all your favorite players would be there, boy, you know, it's going to be so easy to get good seats at Wrigley Field. Don't you think? How about that? Uh, But but, for high prices. But I digress.
5: Uh, (laughs) Yeah, we weren't going to talk about them. No, I have well,
4: got to. I mean it's just so stunning that they just dismantled the team and every single fan favorite is now in New York or San Francisco. It's like, or okay, or, or or the White Sox. So, uh go go Sox. I always say <laughs> that Chicago's a much better town when the Sox are winning than when the Cubs are winning. Um Forbes has uh, we found this out from Gardencom sent out a, a notice the other day. Garden.com used to be called the Garden Writers Association, and they turned it into Garden Com. And uh, they uh, had a, uh, a newsletter come out the other day, uh, and there's an article in Forbes about, this is about U.K. gardeners, but I, I wonder if it applies to U.S. gardeners as well. Uh, UK consumers are in a second year of celebrating their lawns and outdoor space. Now, see, I don't consider lawns gardening, but, that's, that, but I digress. Um, the latest statistics from Nationwide show that uh, spending on everything gardening was up 77% in April to June versus uh, June to March mm-hmm. of 2021. So as the year got rolling... Uh, It says, you know, they started getting more involved. Outdoor space in Britain is experiencing something of a renaissance since the start of the pandemic. Now, see the difference there, though. Great Britain has had lockdowns Mm -hmm. this year. Um, We don't believe in keeping in the United States, actually keeping people healthy. So we don't have lockdowns here. And we allow people to wander the streets without vaccines. Uh, Go to Lollapalooza. Yeah, go to Lollapalooza. Ah, what could happen? What could possibly go wrong? Huh? I actually feel sorry for the people in the restaurants because, as the uh, uh, the rates shoot up again, I don't know. A lot of them won't make it if we have another spike. the The ones that have just hung on and barely hung on over the last year, uh, it's going to be tough. Uh, I've got a fiftieth uh, anniversary class reunion where they invited me uh, for October, and I said. So, what are your uh, conditions? Uh, I mean, what what are you going to do about uh, COVID? Still waiting for reply. I've Gotten crickets so far. Uh, I'm. I don't think they're going to do anything. I mean, it's in the the suburbs of Detroit. There's probably a lot of those people who are not vaccinated and don't care. I don't know. You know, I have no idea. So, it's um, this 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 thing ain't over, folks. This uh, pandemic is not over. Far from it. So anyway um a bombardment this is back to the forbes article a bombardment of articles and social media posts have leveraged interest with everything from how-to to to tutorials on creating outdoor rooms kitchen dining and even workout spaces built in the garden through to grow your own influencers guiding novices through step-by-step crop harvesting um, it says the trend is not limited to just the UK, um, with uh, a rise in trend toward landscaping, farming, and home gardening reported across Europe and North America. More than 20 million Americans planted a vegetable garden for the first time during the COVID-19 pandemic, according to Bonnie Plants. That's something we reported on last year, that, and that was last year. I don't, I don't know what the—we should get um, Chris Bates from Grower Talks on the show again and maybe he's got yeah. n- new information
5: this spring, a lot of the numbers were up a lot same with you know just a lot of the backyard projects and hardscaping and patios and everything else and gardening of course
4: yeah um here's an interesting story there are a couple that i uh, in the environmental realm which one uh, are we going to here oh um the it's Yep, it's bleak, says expert who tested a 1970s end-of-the-world prediction. Now, this was in The Guardian. Uh, A woman, Gaia Harrington, is a Dutch sustainability researcher and advisor to the Club of Rome, a Swiss think tank. Boy, it just... (laughs) Club of Rome, a Swiss think tank. Okay.
5: Um, Well, and even the photo that... I I just put the link up. The photo in The Guardian is firefighters tackling a blaze and you just see this giant cloud yeah. of smoke
4: anyway uh this woman uh, gaia harrington uh authored a report that appeared to show a controversial 1970 study predicting the collapse of civilization was apparently right on time um this was uh something called it was a 1972 mit study called the limits mm-hmm. to growth that presented various outcomes for what could happen when the growth of industrial civilization collided with finite resources. Now, with the climate crisis increasing the frequency of extreme weather events, uh, about which we will talk to Rick DeMaio in a few minutes, and many single events shown to have been made worse by global heating, the Club of Rome, publisher of the original MIT paper, has returned to the study. Um, and she said, uh, from a research perspective, I felt uh, a data check of decades old model against empirical observations would be an interesting exercise. Uh, she's a sustainability analyst. The MIT scientists said we needed to act now to achieve a smooth transition and avoid costs. This was back in 1972. They were saying mm-hmm. we need to act now. Yeah. 1972, folks. 50 years ago. And that didn't happen, Harrington told the Guardian this week. So we're seeing the impact of climate change. Wow.
5: Yeah, and there was another article I was reading, and I think it came from Rick, and I'm I'm looking for it, and I'm not finding it. And it was just saying how everything seems to just be converging this year. And scientists were saying, it's happening, it's happening But whether that was 2017 or 2030 or 2025 and how 2021 seems to be the year of everything, like this story was saying, just converging between the wildfires, the extreme weathers, the flooding,
4: the pandemic
5: that won't go away.
4: I'm trying to remember where I saw that. Yeah, Uh...
5: I thought it was in, in Rick's. Latest email might have been
4: one of one of the um, many many articles he he sent us for for homework this week. Thanks, Rick. We
5: do Uh, get homework. Yes. Yeah, we get
4: homework. You know, I'm too old for homework. I really am. (laughs) I don't want to do homework anymore. Why do Why do you think I never got uh, I went on to a master's or PhD because there was more homework. It's just all homework. But
5: at, at some point, all of the swirling clouds were going to come together. Yeah, and everyone's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah." Down the road, well, down the road might just be here. Was the point of that article?
4: Yeah, and uh, and then another th- article. I was, I was, uh, I get these uh, emails from the Guardian, uh, especially the the green articles from the Guardian, which uh, I really think is a very good paper, very good s- source of news. Um, maybe we should ask folks which are the best countries in the world to survive speaking of global societal collapse which countries would you say uh, those of you uh, watching us go ahead and pop uh, your guesses uh, onto our chat function uh, because I found an article and we'll get back to this that are the uh, are the best places are the places best suited to survive global collapse according to a study Um, well
5: Casey you read the article
4: <laughs> well, that doesn't count. If Casey read the article, then get out of there. Um, and um, he's got one of them, but there are, uh, and there are two guesses: New Zealand. artist well, is out there. Yeah, so I don't know if they read the article or not, but
5: uh, New he, said no. he
4: said no. Okay.
5: Well, New Zealand at one point was also well. Actually, our former intern Kayla
4: right moved to New Zealand. Is in
5: New Zealand right now. Yeah. Good for her.
4: I want to. I want to join her okay i want i want to we'll we'll get to, back to that and i'll give you those uh, before we uh get out of here uh, but i want folks to, to have a chance to uh to put in their votes um and um uh another story this is my guardian week so another one from the guardian uh and again this is about britain uh it's about bees. bees honeybees that there is a growing concern from scientists and experienced beekeepers, and I love it, from and experienced beekeepers, that the vast numbers of honeybees combined with a lack of pollinator-friendly species could be jeopardizing the health and even survival of some of about 6,000 wild pollinators. I would guess they mean wild pollinator species across the U.K., Last year, Kew Gardens State of the World's Plant and Fungi Report warned, quote, campaigns encouraging people to save bees have resulted in an unsustainable proliferation in urban beekeeping. See, folks, this is not saving bees. This is, you know, honeybees are a crop, kind of. Uh, a, um, it says this approach only saves one species of bee, the honeybee bee. With no regard for how honeybees interact with other native species, and um, apparently they're they're pretty aggressive, mm-hmm. um, and they they uh, outcompete uh, other native bees. Um, so uh, it's also in the article. Um, Global factors are contributing to the catastrophic stresses and strains endured by wild pollinators, a group that includes not only bees, but bats, flies, moths, wasps, birds, butterflies, and beetles. And human beings, and you know mammals are also uh, are pollinators in their own way. Mm-hmm. It's climate change, it's lack of floral resources in the countryside. We have lost a third of the nectar in the countryside since the 1950s. This is what we call habitat. So when we're referring to habitat uh, in the United States and elsewhere in the world, this is uh, what they're referring to in. And,
5: and honeybees are more generalists than specialists. So right,
4: right. they're sharing of resources issues. Honeybees are very efficient, almost omnivorous consumers of nectar and pollen. They are voracious. There is no off button, they say in the story. They will carry on consuming what's out there as long as it's out there. Just to stay alive, each beehive will consume 250 kilos of nectar and 50 kilos of pollen. If you have a hive of 70,000 bees, that's 70,000 times four or five cycles over a single season. You're talking about almost half a million bees that have got to be fed. So there you go. So have we had any uh, more guesses? Iceland.
5: Iceland. Uh- Wow, Audrey these says. these
4: people are smart. Our uh, our viewers are are the smartest folks. All right, here's the list uh, that uh, they had in the Guardian: New Zealand, Iceland, the UK. Uh, interestingly enough,
5: hmm.
4: Tasmania, and Ireland. Uh, hmm. To assess which nations would be most resilient to such a collapse, countries were ranked according to their ability to grow food for their population, protect their borders from unwanted mass migration, hence the islands all making the list. And maintain an electrical grid and some manufacturing ability, islands in temperate regions and mostly with low population densities came out on top, on top. And Kathleen said, "Iceland?" I said, "Well, it's uh right next to the Gulf Stream." Yeah. So.
5: And it says, we were quite surprised the UK came out so strongly. It's dense, densely populated, has traditionally outsourced manufacturing, hasn't been the quickest to develop renewable technology, and only produces 50% of its own food at the moment, but it has the potential to withstand shocks.
4: Ah, okay.
5: Hey, can I put in a quick plug? Yeah. Four. It's August 1st. Oh, it's the new issue. Woo-hoo. Okay. We tell can us talk more about that. You got, you got another minutes. week.
4: No, no, but you I got two weeks. You got two minutes. Well, give, give us give okay. us uh, uh, some of the highlights.
5: Quick rundown. This is
4: and and for those uh, of you listening on the uh, on the podcast, she's talking about Natural Awakening, Chicago Magazine. The August issue mm-hmm. just came out.
5: Yep, and in our Natural Chicago this month, Cheryl Devore, who writes every month, on. Um, local environmental issues. New tree census reveals ways to protect region's urban forest. And so she's taking a look at the Morton Arboretum's 2020 census of trees in the Chicago region and what that means for our area, as well as a list of great native trees to plant in your yard. If you're looking to add or replace some trees, Yes, we've got a piece on pollinator friendly yards and some great plants and places to learn about pollinators. Um, Got some health and wellness, water sports for total body workouts and back to school wellness, and just a lot of things about how to slow down a little bit and and bring a little more happiness into your life, which is really important right now, especially what? after stories like what we just talked about.
4: Wait, I, I, I love being miserable. What's wrong with that? Okay,
5: well, that's okay. Then you can read the recipes.
4: <laughs> well, but, but the recipes will make me miserable too, because I'm, I'm not a very good cook.
5: Well, oh. but, but whatever.
4: Okay. All
5: right. <laughs> yeah. NACHicago.com for the digital edition. Sign up for our e-newsletter. Please go to the Natural Awakening Chicago YouTube page and subscribe. And uh, also, they're out in delivery right now. So between today and this week, hopefully you can pick up your local copies across the greater Chicago metro
4: region. Fantastico. All right, it's 10.30. Let's take a break. Rick DeMaio, meteorologist extraordinaire, follows whether you're a farmer or a backyard gardener. Assist your soil in providing key nutrients to your plants with Spectrum Soil Inoculum from Tinyo Biologicals. The beneficial microorganisms in Spectrum break down and release vital nutrients and make them more accessible to your plants. Spectrum works with nature to decompose organic matter into humus, building richer, healthier soil. Spectrum is approved for use on certified organic crops and is OMRI listed. Get Spectrum at blazing-star.com.
3: Once upon a time, in a place called Mzansi, the people loved driving cars everywhere. They used lots and lots of electricity and chopped down many trees for firewood. And then a very strange thing happened. The weather began to change. In some places there were droughts where before there was rain, In other places, the rivers flooded. The grown-ups realized they were contributing to the strange weather. They discovered if they used clean energy and less electricity, they could save Mzansi for their children.
0: What happened then?
1: How the story unfolds is up to each and every one of us. Switch off, recycle, change. Help save tomorrow, today you can help slow
5: climate change in 2021 by composting and you don't even need a backyard by composting communally in multi-unit buildings across chicagoland collective resource compost has diverted 7,000 tons of food scraps since 2010 crc brings you a fresh five gallon bucket or a 32 gallon neighbor tote with each pickup you fill it with organic matter they swap it out and get it to a commercial composting operation fight climate change go to collectiveresource.us
4: and welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. There are the chimes. And the spider plant. The spider plant. It, it, is that a spider plant, Rick? Is that a spider plant, Rick? Um,
2: well, it's actually a
5: it's a couple of things. Let's see.
4: Oh, okay. Do you got a better view? Oh. Yeah, that looks like a spider plant and something else in there, too. I can't tell. Is that one
5: that of your happens. farmer's market finds? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this actually I got a chalet.
2: Um, because it matches the one I got at the farmers market. The farmer's Market one I got for twenty-five bucks, and you want to guess what it cost that shell? You, you you
4: asked to, me you asked me that several weeks ago, and I uh, embarrassed uh, myself, uh, so I'm I'm not participating. <laughs> it was it was twice
2: as much yeah. at chalet as it was the farmers market. Okay.
7: Yeah. So there you uh, go. let
2: me let me open my let me
4: open my door here so I can get a better connection. That's gonna help the connection. Is that is that how this works? So if you got air, you get a you get a better internet connection. If you got a breeze. Well, it's like trying to get through a plaster
5: wall, I guess.
4: Uh, I, yeah, I, that's it. That's it. It'll work better now. Okay, you say so. <laughs> he does this all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how, how you doing, uh, Mr. Rick? I'm doing fine. Yeah, a little
2: bit of haze in the sky. I didn't have to use my air conditioner again last night. Um so uh status quo for the summer of 2021. Up down up down up down.
4: Up right? down up down. Yeah, I have to admit I did enjoy the cool air when it came in the other day. That was that was really very nice.
2: Yeah, and then again this morning we had another front come through and it's going to be like this for the next 3 to 4 days. So if you like a nice breeze off the lake, um mm-hmm. this weather is for you. And i think the lake water temperature is still at 72 degrees so even though we had a couple of days of southwest winds uh the warmth of the lake has actually gone down to a depth where the offshore flow doesn't affect it as much so typically this time of the year between the first of august and about the 8th of august is when the lake water temperature uh is at its warmest so no excuse not to enjoy what mother nature gave us 12,000 years ago when the glaciers all melted.
4: Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Absolutely. And it
2: was
5: interesting watching the hourly, um, just on the forecast of, of how that wind clocked around from yesterday afternoon yeah. to the northerly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's been like that. We've had a lot of these winds peg uh, wind shifts where literally it goes from Southwest to North to Northeast mm-hmm. in a very short amount of time. And, Great news if anybody is down at Lollapalooza because they've had nothing but very comfortable weather, Friday night, Saturday night, um, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and now tonight. Um, and what I love about the placement of my um, of my wind chimes is that whenever the wind blows from the northeast, they begin to make a sound. So I could be laying in bed with the windows closed or slightly closed, and as soon as I hear them, I go up, the wind Room. Um the wind so ah, That's my, Yeah. That that's my that's my windshift um announcer. I like that. Fantastic. Um yep. I, I,
5: I have a wind chime that actually is tuned to sound like one of the buoys up in Green Bay. I should put that oh, out that, for the north. That
2: real yep. boom sound?
5: Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah, cool. except one of the oh. smaller ones. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. could be my northeaster warning. <laughs>
2: Yeah, you know what? One of my neighbors had has this like wind chime. It's like two feet long, and everybody was complaining it was too loud, so she had to tie it up. Um, oh, but it was it was a little loud. It was like, boom, boom, boom. As opposed you know, the little bit of a this sound, I think is kind of nice. Hers was a little bit noisy. Actually, and when like she that. complained to me about it, she goes, "Boy, your wind chime isn't that isn't as loud as mine." I'm like, "Well, mine is twelve inches long. Yours is like four feet long. So there's the reason why." I didn't really have to explain it much to her, but I think she got the point. So, uh, happy August, guys!
4: Yeah, here we are, and uh, looking at the uh, last seven days of uh, of precip here, um, it uh, how how have we gotten uh, any of those drought areas covered yet? Well, well, you know what? The the first thing that's really cool
2: about this is notice the direction. Of the rain path. It's all from the northwest to the southeast, and that kind of shows you the direction of the upper level flow. Mm. So typically, when you get into uh, northwest flow, you don't really get large amounts of widespread heavy rains because the precipitation is coming down in little pockets. When you have more like west to east flow, you'll get rain totals that are kind of like In that west to east but they'll be a little bit further north a little bit further south and sometimes when you get southwest flow you'll get more of a widespread rain of lighter amounts so this rainfall map alone uh dictates the flow of the air in the upper levels but it also shows you that um if you get under one of these cores you can get some pretty heavy duty rain if you do not um you get lighter amounts So the areas in extreme southeast Wisconsin, it says 0.2. There's a couple spots in northern Cook and DuPage County over two inches. So, again, the areas that needed it, um, northeast McHenry, northern Cook, uh, well, probably more like northeastern Cook and most of Lake County and southeast Wisconsin did not get the rains that they needed, so they continue to be almost um, 8 to 10 inches below what they should be for this time of the year. And, yeah, you see the 30-day map there. Um, Again, it highlights the same thing that we've seen since pretty much the beginning of June, which is an area of less than an inch of rain for the month of July. And I think 1.9 inches fell in the month of July at O'Hare, about the same at Rockford. But, again, when you go further south, um, the numbers double. And then you go into areas of central Illinois and even southern Illinois, and they triple and even quadruple. So again, it's really funny how drought works. Um, it's usually a combination of the large scale flow, um, the smaller scale systems, just not you know meet, just not getting into your particular area. Um, and then the third one, which has nothing to do with meteorology, um, it's all luck. <laughs> Whether or not you mm-hmm. get lucky enough to get underneath one of these things, but again, um, you really don't notice the drought until you start to get hot. And when we had temperatures in the lower 90s this past week, where you had, uh, or even the upper 80s, um, where you had uh, evaporation rates of about a quarter inch a day, when you're below normal rainfall, and then all of a sudden you're, after four or five days, evaporating an inch and a half of water out of your topsoil, you notice it pretty quickly. And I already, I can see the grounds basically dry and then the, the public one. Um, have gone back to that kind of lighter shade of um, green and a little bit of yellow. But still, the corn looks great, and the trees are doing okay, but you notice some of the bushes are beginning to kind of droop a little bit. So uh, the fact that we're going to stay relatively rain-free
4: around here. Uh Uh-oh. He's got to open the screen screen door. Uh, Open it wider. Open oh, yeah, open open that too. We
5: lost your we lost your video here, Rick.
4: Uh, <laughs> all right. We can.
5: Uh... Yeah, no, but it, it was what he was saying. You know, with with the dryness and all that evaporation, I finally had to,
4: you know, really get
5: out and do some serious watering here.
4: Um, yeah, let me get our uh, other screen back up here so we don't have to
5: <laughs> look at him staring up.
4: <laughs> yeah, it like he'll uh, maybe he'll come back and maybe. <laughs>
5: Oh, text him.
4: Uh, yeah. Oh, there you are. You're there back. He He's back. Hey, I had, I had to make a quick call. Open the to screen the screen door. Uh, <laughs> what was that?
5: Open the window and the screen door.
4: That'll help. Yeah. No
2: I, yeah. I had to make a quick call to the president of Ukraine. I needed a
4: favor for him, but that's okay. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, one of the things uh, you, you sent along uh, was kind of interesting. I'm not sure exactly what this uh, uh, portrays, but, um, it's called current, current hazards. And that was from yesterday. Um, flooding. Yeah. Uh, it, but, but it, yeah, what it, he, what it seems to indicate that there's a little bit of a pattern change out in the West.
2: Yeah. Well, first off, I think Peg pointed out uh, the flash flooding that was north of St. Louis. Uh, they got, got nearly three and a half to four inches of rain where they didn't need it. Um, you can see that it's finally gotten hotter uh, across Texas, Oklahoma, Much of the deep south, not only hot, but also really humid. So when you start to see excessive heat warnings in places like Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, coastal Florida, you're talking Mm -hmm. about heat index values of 110
5: to 115. Because down there, if it gets 100 degrees. That is the orange and pink, correct? uh,
2: Yeah, the orange and pink, yeah, Peg. uh, When you start to see Uh, pink pink or magenta, as they like to call it, um, along the Gulf Coast, your heat index values are about 110, 115. That's oppressive, right? Now, what's really interesting is the big area of high pressure, um, which was over the Rocky Mountains, moved into parts of Nebraska, Iowa, uh, northern Kansas, and Missouri. So what's happening is you're taking northerly flow, and you're basically pushing – the ability for the atmosphere to generate rain literally off the Gulf Coast. So when that happens, you get warm and you get humid because you don't have the possibility of any clouds and precipitation. So one of the great things about living in coastal Louisiana, Florida, this time of the year, is you'll always get afternoon thunderstorms that will cool you off, but they're not getting it because the upper-level winds are out of the north. Take that same, you know, easterly flow in push it up against the mountains in Colorado and New Mexico, um, and you have three and a half to four inches of rain that came down west of Denver Thursday night into Friday, and I was just checking the observations around Colorado Springs, and they had three and a half to four inches of rain that came down Saturday night into Sunday. I meant Thursday night and Friday. I meant Friday night into Saturday night for Denver, and then the whole thing shifted south um, into the Colorado Springs area, and I-70 was shut down, yeah. I-70 was shut down in areas west of Denver um, into the Breckenridge area due to the fact that they had mudslides. And what happens is the same area that burned last year, remember how terrible the fires were, um, south of Granby. I know, Peg, you and I were talking about this Mm -hmm. last week. But this area, the Cameron Burn area, um, this is the area in yellow. So if you notice, the area in yellow also has the green area, and then the red is the area where they had the heavy rain. So when you have three and a half to four inches of rain on top of soil that doesn't have any plants or any sort of trees because it burned last year, this is what you end up getting. You get mud. So this is what I talk about from a standpoint of climate variability, because what happens is if you just take climate change, which is the number of, which is basically a change index. And if you have less than four inches of rain in 2020, and now you have greater than four inches of rain in 2021, by zero. So what happens is if someone looks at a trend line and just compare one season to the next, yeah, it's zero. But when you think about it, you actually. What is, it? What is zero, Rick? You cut out. OK, so what happens is if you go back last year, you were down four inches. Just give it an you know, arbitrary number. And now you're plus four inches. Zero. Okay. So over so, say, five years, you won't see a trend line. But what you really have to look at is variability. So they had two years of extreme drought, um, extreme heat, extreme wildfire. And now because you've had this burn off of soil and vegetation, Colorado is beginning to see what California sees every year. However, in some of these areas in central Colorado, you don't have you know, areas of just small roads. You have I-70. And I-70 was actually mm-hmm. shut down yesterday due to the fact that they had mudslides. I-70 is not a small road. That's An a eight, major,
5: like, major... Eight to 10 lane yeah.
2: highway. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that's a major intersection that literally goes from one part of Colorado to the next. That's where the Eisenhower Tunnel goes through. So when you look at this area of drought, which basically covers all of Utah, Nevada, and California. I don't have Colorado in there, but if you did look at Colorado, the western side of Colorado is dry. The eastern side of Colorado is wet. That's because they've been on the bottom part of this big ridge of high pressure that has now settled in over the northern plains. So because the monsoon went from Arizona and New Mexico last week now into – Areas of Colorado. The problem though for Utah is because the mountains in Colorado are so tall and you literally have two different ranges. You have the Front Range and the continental divide. The monsoon rains can't get over Colorado and into Utah which is one of the reasons why Utah basically is a desert state. So now when you look at this map here, Eastern Colorado, Eastern New Mexico is wet and you're getting some flow of, of moisture now into parts of Wyoming. Um, there's been some rain in parts of California. There's been some rain in parts of Nevada, but also the heat's beginning to build again back across areas of Oregon and Washington state, but it's not going to last long. So this is going to be about a two to three day warm period for them. And then it's going to get really hot and really dry, um, again across parts of the Western high Plains.
4: All right. Uh, something I wanted to discuss last, and we don't have a whole lot of time, but I wanted you to comment on, because there was an article in the New York Times this week called uh, Headlined, (coughs) Is This this the End of Summer as We've Known It? Um, And uh, they say, uh, the season Americans thought we understood of playtime and ease, of a sun we could trust, air we could breathe, in a natural world that was, at worst, indifferent has become something else, something ominous yep. and immense. And they're talking about wildflowers, drought, sewage spill, spills, resurgence. Red sky viral, every
5: night.
4: You know, yeah, uh, across the, the planet. Um, and more and more articles each week are connect, yeah. connecting this to, to climate change. I'm just wondering how you view that.
2: Well, I think I think two different things are happening here. Uh, the first one is we have a change um, in administration. And when you have a change in Washington, you feel a little bit more empowered, the right stuff, that you know you're going to get. Uh, don't care so much about idiotic pushback from morons just trying to be aligned with another moron in the White House. Okay? So with that said, you know where I stand on that. Uh, the second thing is, yeah, there's a trend. And I think you see it more so – during the summertime, um, when you start to see atmospheric alignments correspond to seasonal alignments, that when you that's when you start to see, you know, the, the heat build. build coast to coast. It's not like you can't get a atmospheric alignment that produces really warm temperatures in April and May, but you're just not going to see the extreme conditions that we have now, which is heat waves, droughts, and wildfires. Usually when you have an atmospheric alignment like this in April and May, people go, wow, this is great. I love early summers. (laughs) And you can't blame them for that. You can't blame people for going, I like it when it gets warm in April. We would like that a little bit around here. The same thing occurs when you have the same type of alignment in September and October. And we've seen that more and more when the tropics get really active, we go, wow, I love the fact that it's staying summer into the first or second week of October. However, when it it aligns with the hottest time of the year, that's when you begin to go, okay, this is not good, all right, because it's happening everywhere. And you're right, Mike, when you start to say the end of summer as we know it, because summer used to be the time of the year, especially when you got into like most likely mid-June, into about mid-August. You don't have to worry about severe weather. You don't have to worry about tornado watches, severe thunderstorm watches. You can go camping and not worry about a tree falling on your head. Um, you can go camping and not worry about, you know, the fact that you're going to have enough water coming out of the creek or the stream or you're pulling out, you know, one of those, um, get exactly what they're called, but when you're when you're literally pulling water out of the ground, what, like a pump or something or a siphon, I mean, people know what I'm talking about. When you go camping, you find one of those places where you fill up your um, your water buckets. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. a pump. A pump. pump. I guess I I I thought that was a hand pump. Yeah, the hand pump. The hand pump is probably what I was looking for. But you know, I've had I've had four or five people who said to me, "I'm glad I went out west this year." When I did, certain uh, there's a couple of people I know who went out west in like late May, early June. And the fact that they said that to me signifies a change in how Americans are going to start planning their summers. It used to be, I'm going to go during the warmest time of the year because that's when you guaranteed good weather. But that's not happening anymore. (laughs) So what's beginning to happen is now we're thinking twice about how we go about planning what was supposed to be the most relaxing time of our year or the year, which has now begun to be filled with – Do I need to worry about wildfires? Do I need to be worried about drought or heat waves? Do I need to be worried about tropical storms anywhere along the Gulf of Mexico? I remember back in 2012 when Rebecca and I went out to California. She says, "What's the weather going to be like out there?" I'm like, "The same for eight days." We were in, we were on the coast. Then we went to Napa Valley. Then we went to Yosemite. But the problem with Yosemite, it was so dry, we could not build. A while we could not build a fire in our campsite. I go, yeah. "Well, don't worry yeah. about it. I have a gas stove." And the ranger said, "No gas stoves. I'm like, how am I going to food?" He goes, "No gas stoves." So you know what happened? Everybody who was in a campsite where we were for lunch and dinner. We're well, usually at lunch or not at your camps anywhere. Everybody for dinner went into town. And now you went into the smallest town, I think it was called Oakwood, and you literally had to wait an hour to get dinner because nobody in any of the local campsites could start a fire. Mm-hmm. So think about that. Now you're beginning to think. And the traffic congestion, too. And the traffic congestions as well. So it was one of these things where I'm like, well, I'm never going out to Yosemite again in July because of the traffic congestion and the fact that you couldn't build a fire and you couldn't have a gas stove. So, all yeah. those things. So, yeah, Mike, it, it literally leads us to thinking twice about how it's changing our our thinking of summer. And again, you always gotta go towards the economics. You always gotta go towards how does this drive people to make plans differently and how does that then affect the economy, not only on a large scale, the parks, but a smaller scale, like Peg was alluding to, traffic jams in small towns and restaurants and things like that
4: yeah and we thought uh, uh, that same article says uh the white house promised us a summer of joy okay air quotes here and mm-hmm. and with the pandemic and with fires yeah. and with heat waves and with drought and with flooding um it's still difficult yeah and uh this, and so this
5: is the article we were referencing earlier in the show i'm realizing yeah and, about. and you
4: know, also you know think
2: about um in florida uh, Two of the last three years, they've had the red tide. So anywhere from like Marco Island, north to Tampa Bay, you couldn't go in the water. Now, um, I'm not going to be with you next week. I'm going out east. On Wednesday, I'm going to be visiting a family in Pennsylvania, New York. And then after that, I'm spending three days in Captiva right on the Florida coast. That area last year and the year before was literally off limits to swimming. So far this year, they've been okay, and hopefully they'll stay okay. But the red tide has been a horrible thing that has completely mm-hmm. altered um, the ability for people to plan 6, 9, 12 months in advance what their summer vacation was going to be like. And that wasn't the case for Peg and Mike and me growing up as a kid. Your parents said, we're going to the Catskills this year, and that's what we're doing. You never thought yeah. about the weather.
5: We're going and, to Yellowstone. We're going to wherever.
4: Yeah. You or just you missed
5: it or whatever. Yeah.
4: You packed up and and, went I, and and now, you know, on top of all that, everybody everybody readjusts their schedules so they're going at the same time, it creates those crowds that you have to plan for as well. And in fact, this article said uh, they write <clears> in Florida al- algal blooms known as the red tide have wiped out hundreds of tons of marine life in the spring. Oh, yeah. In the spring, a leak in the former Piney Point phosphate plant discharged more than 200 million gallons of wastewater into Tampa Bay. Scientists wondered for months how that might affect red tide this year. Now they have their answer. The smell yeah. was just gross, said one of the tourists from Maryland.
2: Yeah. And, and if you've ever been to the western side of Lake um, Erie around Sandusky Point, yeah, um, Lake Erie is unswimmable and has been that way for many, many years. Um, yeah, and the balloons were so, up again. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're beginning to wonder, <laughs> at, at and you know what, and, and then people say, oh, you guys are getting, you know, so uptight over this. Well, aren't you getting uptight over it? I mean, I mean whenever <laughs> you go away, don't you want to make sure that you have like, like a worry-free part of your trip is the weather? You don't have to worry about the weather. You know, usually it used to be that way during the summertime, but it's um, uh, not anymore. Now, me, I'm going to the west coast of Florida on the first week or during the first week of August. I've had a couple of meteorological friends say, are you crazy? But you know what? I I took a chance, um, and it looks like the weather's going to hold. There's not going to be any tropical storms or hurricanes. And (laughs) it's interesting because most of the western Atlantic right now is at or slightly below normal temperature-wise, uh, there's a huge flow of air coming from the east, which is providing too much shear. But the same conditions literally occurred the last two years and was like literally the second and third week of August. Things started to get going, and then they just popped. Um, and, we the yeah, yeah. and we can easily see the same thing. Yeah, from a sample of tropical And we can easily see the same thing again this year. Well, Even though see. we've had a couple of ones early, um, yeah. there's a lot of time left for the season to get active.
4: All right. I want a little before we get out of here. Take a look at a couple of maps. This is a six to ten day precipitation map. Yeah, and, and this is the same area
2: um, that is now going to get dry again as that big atmospheric high sits over uh, Colorado, um, parts of Nebraska, up into South Dakota, and that's gonna that's gonna slowly get kind of kind of squished down a little bit. So while this shows it to be dry it kind of gets squashed a little bit so that it allows this trough to develop over the Great Lakes. So the same pattern that we're in right now will kind of come back for the middle of August. So between about the 8th and the 13th, um, we'll get cool again. We'll have maybe two days over the next two weeks where we may see 92, maybe 93 degrees, but we've been lucky. The high heat and high humidity has basically remained out west. And if you look at how the southeast is basically, um, you know, getting somewhat cooler there, the real warm weather, which is out over the central plains, gets pushed north. Um, They've had more 90s in Minneapolis and Fargo than we've had here in Chicago. And that same area of warm temperatures, as you go to the um, 8 to 14-day, kind of slides north of us again. So we may actually... I think, see our warmest temperatures, maybe next Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, we may actually see mid-90s. But again, once you get into the first week of of August, um, you start to see the 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 kind of become a little bit suppressed upward, just a little bit. Um, It's hard to stay really, really warm once you get into the middle part of August. But it does look like uh, whatever pattern is trying to reestablish itself over the western United States um, is not going away anytime soon. So, again, to put it into perspective, cool today, cool tomorrow, cool Tuesday, cool Wednesday, cool Thursday. Temperatures, upper 70s, low 80s. I mean, this is as good as it gets. Um, Next best chance of rain probably not until maybe next Friday and a Saturday. And then it looks like Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, of next week, pretty hot, low to mid-90s. But again, with that said, um, you typically will get some of these big nighttime thunderstorms, which we have not had many. Even the ones that came down here um, Wednesday night into Thursday, those things started all the way out in northern Wisconsin, if it wasn't for the humidity levels being as high as they were, um, we wouldn't have gotten that much rain. We got a lot of wind out of it, but half inch rain out of it, and that was it. So, depending uh, where you were, right, yeah, depending on where you were. There were some places the night before that got an inch and a half of rain, but still, it, 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 it's not been that type of a summer for you know for heavy rain. And again, when you go into that first map, the way everything was coming in from the northwest or the southeast, that'll be the same type of pattern next week as well.
5: Okay,
4: all right, Rick. Well, listen. Have a great time with the Red Tide, um, and uh, tell tell Stay us out of the water. <laughs> tell us what it smells like when you when you get back up here. Uh, no, I actually hope you have a good time, and we're we're going to be out next week at, at the, the Growing Place in uh, Aurora. So this actually works out very well uh, for us because we'll have we'll have folks on site that we can we can talk to there. Uh, so great,
2: sounds good. And I'll, and I'll keep you up to date on stuff anyway. You know me; I never stop.
4: You, you never do <laughs> okay <laughs> rick yeah you, you have a great sunday okay we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks take care guys all right um and that just about does it for us so i guess i get to hit this, yep.
5: this is a, yeah quick reminder come out to the growing place next sunday
4: yeah uh the, it doesn't open until 10 but uh, we'll be there at nine like i said Davis storm
5: in the donuts
4: storm the gates okay uh when and then come in and buy stuff of course that's why we want you out there skeet will be with us it'll be a great time i uh, want to thank uh, pam richard uh, jenny uh, castle andrew rain meteorologist rick de Kathleen, um Gata, the Wonder Cat, Basil, the Fantastico dog, uh, and of course everybody watching us and listening, we really appreciate and Rick's it. Rick's Wind Chimes. Uh, Rick, until next time, go Green or.
1: Go home. Uh, Stadler? Yeah, what? Is that it? Yes, it's over. How'd you like it? I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. <laughs>